Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Corey Horn. During the Second Temple period, after the writing of the Hebrew Bible, a number of Jewish sects began to emerge in literature. The Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, Hasidim, Therapeuti, there's a nice list of different Jewish sects that began to appear. So the plurality is different sects or different opinions, different ways of interpreting the practice of Judaism and the meaning of the Torah. This is Dr. Rodney Carruthers II. He is a research fellow at the Frankel Institute. He holds a PhD in Second Temple Judaism and Christian origins connected to the New Testament. The project Carruthers is currently working on is titled Judaism and its Practice Beyond Ethiopian Rivers. It's something that I've always been interested in for years, trying to get a sense of what forms or elements of Judaism were being practiced in and around Ethiopia. I've been reading through classical works, which we'll talk about here, reading through Hebrew works, certainly Greek works, some writings from the New Testament, pseudepigrapha, and trying to, essentially what I'm doing with the project is trying to reconstruct what types of things were practiced, what elements of Judaism were practiced or known in and around Ethiopia. Understanding how Judaism developed and was practiced through various sects is rather challenging. While literature starts to tell us more about these groups that were growing, they do not provide any information regarding an origin story. One of the reasons for this could be that we do not have a clear depiction of which group was leading during these times. We don't have a clear sense of which of these sects was in charge until we see the period of the New Testament, so in the Roman era, the Sadducees appear to be the ones that are in charge of the temple and have a relationship with the Roman Empire where they are able to lead the Jewish people. However, other sects are still around during this time. For example, in Josephus, even though the Sadducees are in charge, The Jewish historian Josephus reports that the Pharisees were the party of the people, so they had a strong following and some degree of popularity. The Hebrew Bible mentions the Ethiopians numerous times, which makes it apparent that Judaism is woven into the fabric of the sect. Zephaniah 3.10, which is one of the key passages for my work, where it reads, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, a suppliant, my scattered ones, shall bring my offering. We also have another passage, Psalm 87.4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia too, and Tyre, with Ethiopia. And then another important passage, Isaiah 11.11. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Ethiopia. And it goes on from there. What we see here immediately in some of these passages in the Hebrew Bible is a connection with Ethiopia or Ethiopians and some proximity with an understanding of the God of Israel. Now, to what degree the passages don't tell us, but they put Ethiopia and Ethiopians in proximity with some of the Jewish degree of understanding. And this is the connection to the passage with Tacitus, 
that some are thinking that Ethiopians may have been Jews. The, who the majority are, we don't get that whole sense, but there must have been something going on. Then, of course, later we get in the New Testament in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, where we have the Ethiopian eunuch who is coming from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship, is reading the Isaiah scroll, and the question, of course, is how does this figure know about the God of Israel, and why is this figure coming to worship in Jerusalem? The premise is there must be some understanding of Jewish practice and Jewish religion in Ethiopia, and these types of passages allude to it. Carruthers' work is to figure out what types of traditions and practices were known for the Second Temple period. So, of course, looking at not only the Hebrew Bible, but the New Testament passage along with the classical works, trying to reconstruct what we can know. One example we have as a point of reference to how variants functioned is found in Jeremiah. We have a very interesting example in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 44, verses 17 through 19, is where we get the voice of the people from the outside. They're not the accepted group. We get the voice of the group that's doing something contrary to what's usually accepted. So these are Judeans that are exiled in Babylon, and what they're sharing in Jeremiah is their rationale for why they were exiled. There's always the problem of if you're serving the God of Israel, you should be protected from outsiders coming in and being able to exile you or defeat you in some way. So if they go through exile and are defeated, the question is, why did it happen? In some cases in the Hebrew Bible, the reason for the exile is explained as, oh, it was because of the sins of King Manasseh. Others explain it, oh no, we went into exile because we were breaking the Torah, committing sin. And then here in Jeremiah 44, we get the explanation, a third explanation. Oh, we went into exile because we stopped worshiping the queen of heaven. Now, who is this queen of heaven? The text does not tell us. Scholars who look at this time period for the exile and, of course, for Babylon, some associate this figure with perhaps Ishtar, a Babylonian goddess, but we do not know for sure. The time period for the Jeremiah is prophesying, he's a prophet to Judah around the 7th century BC. The depictions of Ethiopians and Ethiopia as a whole that are mentioned throughout the Hebrew Bible New Testament, and other Jewish literature are, in fact, depictions. These largely depend on the authors of the text and what kinds of information they gathered and what kind of perspectives they had. So in some cases in the Hebrew Bible, we have examples of Ethiopians with a positive description or connotation. Sometimes they're described as being strong or as in Isaiah 18.7, they're tall and smooth. Or maybe we have a negative connotation where the Ethiopians are described as not keeping to what God entrusted to them. Likewise, in patristic writings from origin, for example, we have Ethiopians engaging, depicted as engaging in, in adverse kinds of behaviors, like feeding on human flesh. The way Ethiopians are depicted in some of those writings can be positive. In Homer's poetry, we have the Ethiopians celebrated as figures that led the Olympian gods to leave Mount Olympus and go and have meals and banquets with them because of their piety. 
So the view of the Ethiopians ranges from positive to negative or wicked, depending on the writer's purview. The way that this connects to different forms or sects of Judaism is that we can see how some may describe the Ethiopians and their practices and how they may be similar to what we see with Jewish tradition, belief, and practice, whereas others may describe them in a derogatory sense because they don't agree with them or their beliefs and practices as a different form of Judaism. Another group of writings important to Carruthers' research comes from a figure named Tacitus. Tacitus is an important figure for this particular research because of his comment about the origins of Jews. In his passage, he mentioned specifically the city of Jerusalem. He says, It seems proper for me to give some account of its origin, examples of traditions, and how Jerusalem came to be. He then goes on to say how others may think of Jerusalem and that it was an Ethiopian stock. Tacitus is writing as a Roman historian in the first century CE. This is coming from his writing called The Histories. And this is central to the work as a launching point. Then we connect with a text in the Hebrew Bible like Zephaniah, where Zephaniah is a prophet to Judah during the reign of King Josiah around the 7th century BCE. And his observation or his, his telling is that there are people from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia or in the Hebrew who also attend to the God of Israel. The major issue with Tacitus is that he's reporting what others say meaning the other examples that he gives are questionable. The examples of the origins of the Jews are clearly inaccurate. When he says the majority think that they were of Ethiopian stock, we have to ask, who is this majority? They are likely other historiographers or the learned elite problem. But the questions with the other examples of the origins of the Jews appear to be inaccurate. This could certainly be inaccurate as well. But the work that I'm doing is looking to see if there were some thinking that they were associated with Ethiopians, what type of evidence do we have? This is why Carruthers is looking at other types of texts outside of the Hebrew Bible and New Testament to see how they're describing Ethiopians, to see if any of the practices that we know about about Judaism are observed. This can be things like associated practice of circumcision or practices with kings and the selection of them and see how they overlap with what we know of Jewish practice. So I'm looking through to see what kinds of connections are there. Modern Ethiopian halakha also gives us something to work with to try to trace back and see the practices that are being done now by Ethiopian Jews who are also referred to as Beta Israel. They claim that some of their practices go back to this period as well, the Second Temple period. So trying to see what elements align gives me something to say, okay, is it possible that Ethiopians during the Second Temple period were practicing these things that look like Judaism? To outsiders, they may not look like Judaism. Carruthers then brings in the Kebra Nagast a later venerated Ethiopian text that expands on the Solomonic tradition of how King Solomon, the third king of Israel, and the queen of Sheba connect, and how they eventually have a son who ends up bringing Judaism to Ethiopia. 
The Kebra Nagast is a fascinating work because of the collaboration on the tradition of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. In the biblical tradition, Solomon is known for his wisdom and has his interaction with the Queen of Sheba. In that tradition, she comes, learns wisdom from Solomon, and ends up going back to her own kingdom. It is not mentioned that she goes back to Ethiopia, just that she goes back to her kingdom. But in the Kebra Nagast, which is translated glory of the kings, the queen of Sheba or Saba is from Ethiopia. So in that tradition, she comes, learns from Solomon, and they develop a relationship, end up having a son together who's named David II, and he also is called Menelik. And what he does in this text is he doesn't want to rule Israel as Solomon's son. He wants to go back to Ethiopia. So in the text, he convinces the high priest Zadok to teach him and some of his companions about Judaism and keeping the Torah and how to handle the temple practices and liturgy. And he eventually heals the Ark of the Covenant. And he takes some priests with him back to Ethiopia, where he establishes a temple and, of course, establishes the practices of Judaism. So what this leaves us with is a character myth, an origin story of how Judaism came from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. And this is, of course, a brief summary of how Judaism began and was practiced in this region. Connected to this, not in a narrative, but more of an archaeological source, would be the Aramaic papyri. The Aramaic papyri are in Elephantini, an isle of Egypt, but it's along the border of Ethiopia as well, close to the border. And in these Aramaic papyri, uh, there's something of a different form of Judaism being practiced, with the temple to Yahu and their priesthood and the types of festivals that they're practicing that are described in these papyri. And this is from around the 5th or 6th century BCE, so this is going quite a ways back. And the connection with Ethiopians here is that in Herodotus, the Greek historian from around the 5th century BCE, Herodotus talks about how the island of Elephantini is inhabited by, or at least half of it is inhabited by, Ethiopians. This provides an idea of how Ethiopians could be around that temple setting and the other form of Judaism, then bring some of those practices back across the boundary into Ethiopia, mainly due to the ease of proximity. The Kebra Nagast is the venerated tradition for some Ethiopians of how Judaism came to Ethiopia. Between these two texts, we have documentary-style sources that inform us on the day-to-day of what people were doing. But another source that Carruthers is analyzing is focused on something called ethnography. Or ethnography, the study of people or nations. And these writings come from outsiders, Greek historians, such as the two primary sources that I use are Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus. So with Herodotus, he's a Greek historian from around the 5th century BCE, writes the Persian Wars, and Diodorus Siculus or Diodorus of Sicily is from around the first century or so BCE, and he writes the Library of History. Both of these Greek figures are essential for understanding Ethiopian culture, religion, and practice 
because they report on what they have either heard or read about in other writings about Ethiopians from these time periods. This tells us that the traditions that have come down to them, they're reporting it. So maybe one will be a practice of circumcision, two might be how they're selecting kings, three might be the food that they eat or where they live. All of these types of things that both of these figures give us make them a central piece in trying to reconstruct what's known about the Ethiopian culture and religion outside of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So connecting that with the Kebrimagast or Aramaic Pyri or pseudepigraphal writings, it's something of a collage of sources and trying to evaluate and merge the different reports from these sources in order to construct what we can know. This type of research is important for several reasons. It helps not only the researcher, but also the reader. The person reading about this possibility that Ethiopians potentially practiced different forms of Judaism. It shows that in antiquity, things were often not monolithic, but instead were fluid and diverse. And that when we're looking at Jewish sects, we can also include a group like what we see happening in Ethiopia during the Second Temple period and even a bit before or after, giving us a lot of context about how things could have developed. Much modern Judaism, much like modern Christianity, the diversity in beliefs and practices show how people at different points in times and locations understood their faith or understood their religious practice, and we see something similar with the Ethiopians. We also gain a better understanding of the interaction between Jews and Ethiopians, both in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. We can certainly see it later in rabbinic and patristic sources, so understanding the types of practices and the ways that Ethiopians were understood during the Second Temple period gives us another lens to read through and interpret writings from these sources. It's also valuable for expanding on well-known traditions in the Hebrew Bible, such as the tradition with Solomon and the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. And lastly, it helped to expand our understanding of how we think about the historical development of not only Jewish practice, but how religion finds new ways of being understood depending on the people that are practicing it, what location they're in, and what time period. So this sense of Judaism and its practice beyond Ethiopian rivers is another way to add to the vast diversity of Judaism throughout antiquity, but specifically during the Second Temple period. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Scott Spector. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.